John 19, this morning, starting in verse 38, going into the next chapter until verse 10. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scriptures, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. A survey from a couple of decades ago has long since stuck in my head. It was a survey of Christians, people who said they attended Christian church services at least three times a month. They said they believe the Bible is the word of God. They said the claims of the Apostles' Creed are true. But then they were asked, what would happen to your faith if the body of Jesus was found? Set aside how we would prove it. Just assume that with 100% certainty, we knew that the bodily remains of Jesus of Nazareth had been found. And what, they were asked, what would happen to your faith? Though they meant well, many gave a perplexing answer. That for them, it would change nothing. They said basically that their faith is strong, and so they would continue to believe and practice Christianity just as they had before. Finding proof that the resurrection didn't happen wouldn't undermine anything they believed. But here's the thing. It should. Throughout the ages, the world has known many moral examples and wise teachers Plenty of people have claimed to be gods or sons of God. There are other religions that teach people to be kind to one another and to to submit to something that is bigger than self. But these teachers, these self-proclaimed prophets and these other religions are ultimately all talk. They have either borrowed truth or no truth at all, and most importantly, They have no power. They have no power to change the creation which labors under the curse. They have no power to reconcile the relationship that is broken between God and man. 
And they have no power to change you. No power to change the nature of man freeing us from our bondage to sin and our debt to death. Christianity is not the religion that it is just because the claims of Jesus were unique. The world is full of religious claims. What makes Christianity unique is that the claims that it makes are all verifiable by the truth of one particular claim. He is risen. Christianity is what it is because all of Jesus' claims were validated by God himself in the resurrection. And as the saying goes, this changes everything. Consider the before. The creation groaning under the curse of Genesis 3. Mankind alienated from God on account of our willful sin and rebellion against him. And as this passage shows us in several ways, the nature of man itself is one of sinful fear, confusion, unbelief, and hopelessness. Consider two of the first characters mentioned, Joseph and Nicodemus. Joseph of Arimathea was a wealthy member of the Sanhedrin. Publicly, he was a member in good standing, along with those who plotted putting Jesus to death. But privately, in secret, he believed what Jesus had been teaching. Now, he had not admitted this for fear of what would happen to him. If he were found out, he would lose his position on the ruling council, and he could even be put out of the synagogue entirely. He believes, but sinful fear overwhelms his belief. Nicodemus, we remember from earlier in Jesus' ministry. John reminds us of that encounter here in verse 39. He says he had earlier come to Jesus by night. Again, the emphasis on night. The emphasis is on secret, on hiding. It's on weak faith that is overtaken by fear. Nicodemus was also likely a member of the Sanhedrin. He faced the same risks as Joseph, and it was just too risky for him. Do you know what it's like to take counsel of your fears and to listen to them rather than to Christ? These men did. And consider Mary Magdalene at the beginning of chapter 20. Before the sunrise, she and several other women leave their homes to go to the tomb. And they're hoping that the guards will move the stone so that they can enter in and anoint the body. It's hard to tell from the gospel accounts whether they first all went together or whether Mary first went alone and then later with the others. I don't know. But when she gets to the tomb, she sees the stone rolled away and she's distraught. She runs to find the disciples convinced that Jesus' body has been stolen. This crime was sadly common at the time. It wasn't an unreasonable fear that Jesus' body would be stolen unless, of course, You expect the resurrection that Jesus had promised. But Mary is too fearful, too hopeless to look for the resurrection. John and Peter aren't much better. When they learn that the stone is removed, their initial expectations are not of a resurrection. 
Now, the nature of man is not the only thing changed by the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. Though not fully until the day of consummation, creation's curse is broken by this power. God and man are reconciled as those who believe are brought into union with Christ. But it's the change this power works in fallen human nature that is most evident in this morning's text. Changes that begin even by the power of his death and come to full flower by the power of his resurrection. For those who believe, this changes everything. Let's start with Joseph and Nicodemus. Before, they cared most about their own selves and safety. The working out of faith was suppressed by fear. But John's references to their fear in 38 and 39 isn't just to criticize, but it's to contrast. Because when Jesus dies, something changes. The power of his death produces courage in them. Perhaps it revealed to them his worthiness. Perhaps on the cross, by the power of his death, they saw him for who he was and were able finally to care less about self and more about him. Haven't you found in your own life that when you see the worthiness of Christ for yourself, you do begin to care less about my wants and more about his glory? When the Romans executed someone, the family would typically take the body away to be buried. But insurrectionists, those guilty of sedition, they were the exception. To make an example out of them for other potential rebels, their bodies would be left up in dishonor for days, and the birds of prey would come and pick them apart. It was a shameful and disgusting thing. And this could have happened to Jesus, except that Joseph leverages his position on the Sanhedrin, his access to go directly to Pilate with a request. And this is risky. It will almost certainly cost him his seat on the Sanhedrin. And if Pilate thought that Jesus really was an insurrectionist, he would not have taken kindly to the request either. Joseph would be siding with someone against the Roman government. But Pilate knows that Jesus is innocent. And Pilate loves any opportunity to frustrate the Jewish authorities, so he grants Joseph's request. It's like Isaiah 53. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and he was with a rich man in his death. Thus Pilate turns over the body of Jesus to a rich man. Joseph of Arimathea. And there isn't much time. The sun is setting rapidly and the Sabbath will soon begin. It's the day of preparation. And thankfully, there is an unused tomb nearby. That's where Nicodemus comes in. Clearly, these two had planned what each would do in advance. Some of their servants would help carry Jesus down from the cross into the tomb. Others would bring in these massive amounts of spices to prepare the body for burial. What will the religious rulers think? It doesn't matter. What will become of their place on the Sanhedrin? It doesn't matter. 
What if they're kicked out of the synagogue and removed from public life in Israel? It doesn't matter. But how can that be? Just yesterday, all of those things mattered more than anything, even more than faith in Christ. But then Jesus died. And this changes everything. When Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb, she sees that the stone has been removed. She runs to tell Peter and John. If Jesus' resurrected body can pass through walls, as we'll see later in the gospel, why did this stone need to be removed? A New Testament scholar identifies two important reasons, one practical and one theological. Practically, while Jesus could pass through, Jesus could get out of the tomb with the stone there, everyone else could not get in with the stone there. The stone was removed so that others could come in and see that the tomb was empty. There's also a theological reason. The removed stone is a powerful visual indication that the grave itself was conquered. Death could not hold him. And it cannot hold those who believe either. Now, it wasn't for lack of trying. Members of the Sanhedrin tried to convince Pilate that the disciples would be up to something and that Jesus' tomb needed to be a maximum security environment. In the other Gospels, we get the details of the guards and the size of the stone and the seal placed over it to ensure that no one could secretly go in. And I'd never considered it, but another pastor I was reading asked himself what God must have been thinking watching Pilate and the Sanhedrin take all of these steps to keep Jesus' body in the tomb. What they were thinking that what they did could keep him in the grave. And the answer to what God is thinking, this pastor thinks, is Psalm 2. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. How strong should we be in our faith? when we remember that none of the schemes or the powers of this world present the slightest concern to our God. His plans will stand. He's not afraid of this opposition of Pilate, of the Sanhedrin, of large stones and wax seals. Nothing they do can keep Jesus In that tomb, nothing they do can separate God's people from the love of God he has for them in Christ. And that's why when Mary went to the tomb, Jesus wasn't there. When John arrives, he finds the same thing she did. The stone is removed and he stoops and he looks in, but John doesn't go inside. He's confused and afraid. He's not thinking about the power of Jesus' death, and he's certainly not thinking about the power of the resurrection. And it's a good thing Peter shows up, because Peter isn't thinking at all. Peter's going to Peter. He just goes right in. 
This is one of those times where his characteristic brashness works to his advantage. That's the point John's making in verses 4 through 6. It's weird. He's not bragging that he's faster than Peter in a foot race. He's contrasting the fact that even though he arrived first, he didn't have the boldness to enter the tomb. It was Peter who arrived behind him, who just went right in. And kids, when Peter went into this tomb, do you know what he found? It warms my heart. He found a clean room. A clean room. I love a clean room. And here, this was very unexpected. Death is not clean. Death is messy and it stinks. That's why Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of aloe and spices to the tomb. It's why Mary and the women came on the third day to anoint the body again. The stench was going to be pretty ripe. Dead bodies stink. Especially in those days when they didn't have refrigerated morgues or chemical preservatives. When you go into a new tomb, you expect, especially three days later, the place is going to reek. And then when they saw the stone removed, thinking that the body was stolen, they expected to see a a mess of a hastily left crime scene. But death isn't what they smelled. And mess isn't what they saw. Jesus' body was gone. And the cloth used to wrap his corpse, it was, as one pastor writes, neatly rolled up and set to the side by one who no longer had any use for it. Indeed, this changes everything. The power of Jesus' death caused selfish men to think more of him rather than themselves. It made fearful men and women bolder in their desire to honor him. The power of his death satisfied the wrath of God against our sin, propitiation. It satisfied the debt, our death, I'm sorry, the debt of death we owed for our sin, expiation. But what the power of Jesus' death did not do was give hope. Hope comes from the power of the resurrection. And that's the hope that John and Peter find in this tomb. All four Gospels mention that this part of the story happens on the first day of the week. Think about the the little minor details of this story. It's sunrise, a new day. It's Sunday, a new week. Because it's a resurrection, a new era in redemptive History. This is why we worship on Sunday rather than Saturday. The resurrection changed things forever. The power of the resurrection is the greatest display of God's love for his people as he saves them from their sins. And the fact of this resurrection is the central claim of Christianity. It is, as Paul told the Corinthians, a non-negotiable. He said, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. John entered the tomb expecting to smell a stench or see a mess. Instead, no body, just neatly piled cloths. Evidence 
of the resurrection. And this is verse 8. That at that moment, seeing what he saw, John believed in the risen Christ. He didn't understand all the details. There was much for he and Peter and the others to learn. But he knew one thing. He is risen. And the one thing changed everything. Another teacher writes that for John, as for all the early Christians, the resurrection of Jesus was the fact upon which their faith was based. Faith that depended on the testimony and the transformed behavior of those under the power of the resurrected Jesus. That's why those surveyed Christians at the beginning, though well-intentioned, were wrong. The resurrection is the power. It is the molten core at the center of Christianity. Without it, this is a religion with no power. The early Christians were persuaded that Christianity was true because of eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ and because it's the changed lives of those who were touched by the power of the resurrection. It's a great tie-in with the text Stephen read this morning. And we think to ourselves, if I only saw something like that, the power of God bring fire from heaven, then I would believe in the power of God. And in the New Testament, in the early church, It was the same event, hearing the testimony of the eyewitnesses and seeing their changed lives. The kind of change that can only happen in a human life by the power of God, the kind of change for which there is no other explanation, that is a powerful witness. John, like many disciples, went from weak faith and poor understanding to becoming a world-class theologian and a devoted slave to the gospel of Jesus. Peter went from the man he was, the man we've been reading about, to the man he would be that we find in his epistles and in Acts. He and the other disciples would go on to choose martyrdom, completely unable to deny the truth of what they had seen, and the power of God to change them. None of the growth in the first two centuries of the church makes any sense apart from the resurrection. They just didn't have this power on their own. Before the death and resurrection of Christ, you're you're looking at men like Joseph and Nicodemus. They consider themselves followers of Jesus. Yeah, we believe him. But everything they do is in fear. And in secret. But look at the boldness of men and women whose faith was injected with the power of Jesus' death and resurrection. The same power that is available to us today. The same power that has always and will always be what grows and prevails his church. If that power can transform Peter, and John, and Mary. Why do you doubt that that power can transform you? 
in the resurrection, God vindicated Jesus and all of his claims. The Sanhedrin said he was a blasphemer. The Romans, even reluctantly, said that he was a criminal insurrectionist. But in the resurrection, God himself said that Jesus was who he said he was. The empty tomb vindicated all of Jesus' claims. And so if verse 10 seems anticlimactic, it's only because we're stopping there for today. The disciples just go back to their homes. Yes, but don't you see? They're not the same as when they left. In 1 Peter, he writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice. They went back to their homes, but everything was different. Because now they had hope. Now they had the power to rejoice. The tomb was empty and everything changed. In the power of his death and resurrection, the curse over creation was broken. In the power of his death and resurrection, we sinners were reconciled to God. And in the power of his death and resurrection, the transformation of our sinful natures into obedient followers of God was secured. We need no longer fear. We need no longer doubt because we may finally look forward in hope. And when we do fear and when we do doubt, And when we convince ourselves that we cannot change or be changed, we look to the resurrection. We rejoice in the hope of the resurrection because here everything changes.